Welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm Katie Daygood, a guest contributor to this series. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. My guest today is Katherine Remlinger, professor of English at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan. Dr. Remlinger is the author of a new book, Talk: Dialect as Identity in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. The book was recently published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Dr. Remlinger, welcome. Thank you, Katie. Um, this is exciting. I'm happy to be here and pleased to have the opportunity to talk to you. Yes, thank you. We're so glad you could join us. Um, so I have here my copy of Uper Talk, and it has on the cover um, a map of the Upper Peninsula in Michigan and a bunch of words inside uh, the the region of the Upper Peninsula. And I wondered if you could just start by defining for us what is a Uper and what is Uper Talk. Well, I'm glad you asked because outside of Michigan, not everybody knows what a Uper is. Uh, Uper is the name for the people who live in the Upper Peninsula, and it's derived from the acronym UP, which many people use to say instead of Upper Peninsula, and then, of course, er meaning a person from or who does something. So you get UP, UPER. Um, it's also, though, used as a label to talk about the dialect that's there, although the dialect is also sometimes called UPERese or UPENESE um, and other assorted names. But um, So the dialect and identity often have the same name. We, we had talked before this interview, I'm from the lower peninsula of Michigan, from West Michigan, um, and you're from Ohio. So you're an Ohioan teaching in Michigan. I'm a Michigander teaching in Ohio. Um, and having grown up in the lower peninsula, the upper peninsula seemed so remote, even to us. And mm-hmm. I love how you talk about how um, not only the history of this region, but the geography of it has influenced the dialect that has taken shape there. Could you tell us a little bit about what drew different groups of people to the Upper Peninsula in the historical period that you're looking at and what life was like there. Sure. Well, first, um, the area was used in the summertime for Ojibwe. Um, People didn't live there year-round, but there was copper mining done there before English-speaking or European settlers um, arrived, and copper mining and summer camps and things by the Ojibwe. Then in... um, Starting in the 1600s, there were French voyageurs and French missionaries who would come to the area. But the first English speakers really started settling in the mid-1800s or even a little bit before that. But in the my research focuses in the northwest part of the Upper Peninsula. So if anybody has a map handy, they'll see Marquette on the northern shore um, of or the shore of Lake Superior, and then up and through the Keweenaw Peninsula. So that's my research area. And in that area, um, copper was discovered in 1842 by Douglas Houghton, who at the time was the state geologist uh, for the uh, Michigan. And um, the, I was going to say territory, but it, it was a state then. Um, um, just newly a state. And after that discovery, there was a rush of people to work there, really. Um, but it wasn't just for copper 
mining. You had to have the land cleared to get at the copper. And there was iron mining, too, uh, in the Marquette area and actually uh, further west. But the land had to be cleared. There needed to be shops and businesses to support this burgeoning population. Um, their fishing was abundant. So that was another industry. Agriculture it is an industry there, but it has a limited um uh, lifespan seasonally because how far north it is, but potatoes, strawberries are two of the main um, agricultural items. And then, of course, dairy is a, another big one, too. But there were folks who came from um, Europe, from uh, France and Germany and Norway and other Sweden and Denmark, Scandinavia. Um, the Finns were the largest per group to arrive, um, but they were the, also the latest group. So they came in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But because of their numbers and because they came later in the immigration waves, they've had a lasting effect on the language through Finnish and English coming into contact over time. That doesn't mean other languages haven't affected uh, the variety there, but Finnish has had a significant effect. Um, Ojibwe um, or Anishinaabemowin has also affected the dialect in some ways. For example, the there's a tag question A. So it's not a nice day, eh? <laughs> it's raining outside my window. Or, hey, that's a pretty dress, eh? Um, that A tag question comes from one of three sources. We're not sure because of how people mixed and mingled. It could have come from Anishinaabemowin. Um, there's that hien is a tag there. Canadian French also has hien uh, or something similar to that. Sorry. Sorry for my bad pronunciation, um, which functions as a tag question. And then the Cornish, who were the first to arrive um, after Americans um, because of they were brought in because of hard rock mining skills. They had A was used and is used in, um, in England and from Cornwall, where these folks came from. So those languages, people, as people mixed and mingled, varieties of English like Cornish English and other languages came in and affected the dialect. But you had mentioned the isolation of the Upper Peninsula, and that's one reason, a geographic feature, why the dialect has stayed um, distinct from other dialects. It doesn't mean it hasn't changed. It has to change. Society changes, language changes. But it has remained distinct because of the isolation and lack of contact or frequent contact with other varieties of American English. So and that's those are two big reasons why the dialects remained fairly distinct. Let's talk a little bit about your method, uh, because okay. it was really interesting to learn about the process of sociocultural linguistics from your book. Mm -hmm. How does a sociocultural linguist uh, gather gather data and how did you stitch together this account? Well, my work is really interdisciplinary. Um, on one hand, I do focus on language, so it has a linguistic element. But I'm not maybe uh, a, what people might think of a traditional linguist of studying vowels or consonants. I'm more interested in the cultural aspects. So um, I'm not a pure sociolinguist, and I'm not a pure, what I would say, linguistic anthropologist. Uh, anthropologist. So I also I like the term sociocultural uh, linguist, and this other people use this too, Mary Buckholtz, Kara Hall, among some others, um, because our work bridges these two big fields that also have a lot of subdisciplines to them. Um, because I'm interested in language and culture and identity, I use a 
variety of methods uh, to collect my data. One, I did uh, interviews with 75 lifelong residents from the age of 12 to 92. And I actually had four people in their 90s, which was great because they gave me a perspective of what life was like in the early 1900s um, in the Keweenaw um, and other parts of uh, Northwest um, Upper Peninsula that I wouldn't get from somebody who was 12 or even 30, right? At the time, people who grew up who were about 60 and older often grew up in homes where English wasn't the first language, where they spoke Finnish or German um, often were the languages of most of my participants. But there are also people who spoke Italian, for example. Um, I also do participant observation. So this is um, the whole method is the name of it is ethnography, where you learn from the people rather than creating experiments and having people do surveys or questionnaire kinds of things. So I would go to um, little league games or I, restaurants and I would just listen to what's around me. I tell my students one of the great things about being a sociocultural linguist is you can eavesdrop with a, a license. Um, but don't worry, I won't write anything down unless it's I have your permission <laughs> so um, and um, in addition to those of course I use dictionaries like the dictionary of American regional English that can give me the history um, of a word like pank which means to pat down or make compact um, and that I might not get from just listening to people. So I need those kinds of sources. And of course, I use a lot of other academic sources to develop my theory um, and my methods too. I also do a lot of visiting for at ethnic festivals because that's where identity, cultural identity really comes out and is displayed on purpose, right? So but oftentimes it's displayed without people realizing it. So in the book, there's um, a discussion of the word bakery, and there's an image of a photo I took at a music festival in Covington, Michigan, that says um, bakery and uh, Lowry's bakery, fresh bakery, I think. I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly what it says. But bakery in this case isn't the building, but the baked goods themselves themselves. And this is a borrowing from German that came in. And if you go to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, you'll hear people talk about bakery and the bakery they ate for breakfast and not the building. Um, and because it's common there because of the German settlement. And this is one feature that's interesting to me because people don't recognize that as what it means to sound like a youper. But it's really, for a linguist, it's significant in the fact that you hear it there and probably not in a lot of other parts of Michigan. Tell me a bit about this idea of uh, uh, language ideology. You sort of said in, in the book that, you know, being a sociocultural linguist means you're not just studying a collection of sounds or grammatical structures. You're studying this ideology of language and how people understand themselves and their position in the world. How did you see that playing out in Uber talk? Well, that's a great. I'm glad you asked me about that. Um, so with language ideology, I'm interested in looking at people's values, attitudes and beliefs that they attach to certain ways of speaking, whether it's their own or other people's. And most often it's other people's. So not everybody values what it means to be a youper and what it means to sound like a youper. In fact, it, the dialect can often be stigmatized. And in the book, I give evidence from um, interviews where students were criticized by teachers or what, where family members criticized other family members for sounding like a youper. And the idea is behind that, that if you sound like a youper, you don't sound intelligent. Of course, that's not true. There's no 
no direct connection between the way someone talks and their level of intelligence. It might reflect their level of education, but not their intelligence. Um, so with language ideology, it's really um, focus on how is it that we have these values, beliefs, and attitudes about ways of speaking, and then how does that get translated um, in our everyday way? that we live, whether it's in the classroom or conversations with um, family members or in the media. And one of the chapters focuses on the media, chapter six, and how the media teaches us um, what it means to sound smart um, by focusing on certain ways of speaking and what it means to sound stupid or to sound like a hick. So, for example, you can look at... um, Oh, this is older, but if you look at The Simpsons and there's a character, uh, Cletus, the slack-jawed yokel, well, what is he, the way he speaks sounds Southern, and how does that then translate to viewers' minds? Even though a viewer might not believe that all people from the South act and look and behave like Cletus, it still reinforces that ideology or those values. Um, How that gets connected with identity then is that some people claim a a local identity, whether it's Uber or Hillbilly or whatever it might be, Um, or let's say Buckeye, since I'm from Ohio and you're living in Ohio, um, by the way we talk. Oftentimes this is done unconsciously. Um, For for example, when when I moved to Michigan um, from graduate school at Michigan Tech, my students, when I was teaching, would tell me, I can tell you're from Ohio. And of course, they heard my vowels. They heard other ways. Well, now I've lived in Michigan um, over 25 years. And when I go home to my family in Ohio, they tease me and say, I sound like I'm from Michigan. So um, but part of that is my identity. I I am a Michigander now. I've lived here longer than I ever lived in Ohio, but I also have Buckeye roots um, and um, consider myself a transplant in that way, too. So our language um, is a way that we show who we are. It's our badge of identity. And sometimes we do that consciously and we perform our identities um, by playing up what it means to be a youper or a Buckeye. Um, Although people in Ohio, and Catherine Campbell Kibler at Ohio State has done research on this, people in Ohio often um, deny, especially Central Ohio, deny that they have an accent or dialect. And they'll say people in Cincinnati do or people in Cleveland do. But people in Cleveland say Columbus people do and they don't. So this also is a part of the book where I look at how does it that this idea of a dialect emerge over time? How is it that we recognize what it means to be a youper through the way people talk, but we don't recognize what it means to be from Columbus the way people talk, or we don't recognize um, Grand Rapids, uh, Grand Rapidians and what they sound like. Um, so those are some of the connections there with ideology, identity, and dialect. Tell me about some of the markers of youper talk. What are some examples of what of what would immediately identify somebody as a youper? Well, some people would claim the word pink, like I mentioned, a pat down or make compact, P-A-N-K. We're not sure where this comes from. Um, there's a uh, similar word that comes out of Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish, banka, which means to pat down and make compact. And because those the people immigrated to the UP, it could have come from there. Um, there's evidence of people, um, minors, using the term to 
pink powder in a blasting hole. Um, and so perhaps miners brought the, that in. But what's interesting to me, what I have recognized and other people recognize is pink being iconic of Upertalk. I have two students in one of my classes this semester um, from the UP, and neither of them used this word, neither of them had heard it. I don't know if it's because of their social groups that they're part of in the UP or their age. Maybe the word is dying out. I don't know. The A at the end of sentences is very typical. And in fact, when I tell people or people know that I do this research, they'll, the, one of the first things they'll say to me is, say yada to you, PA. <laughs> and I often say, you betcha, because that's another iconic phrase. Um, the duh for the, um, the duh sound for the, what might, people might call the hard or voice TH um, is also an emblematic feature. And that's we find that feature throughout the U.S., Canada, as well as throughout the world where English is spoken because the TH sounds, the and the, uh, the voiced and voiceless or soft and hard ones that we have in English are rare. Most languages don't have those two consonant sounds. So speakers of other languages will substitute the closest sound in their mouth and their language um, that represents that. So does often use for the, but that's also an iconic. So you, there's a very popular in Michigan um, bumper sticker that says, say ya to the UPA. And it says ya for yes, that's another feature, the duh for the, and then that a. Um, other features um, are some vowel sounds. Um, so for example, the word pasty and the pronunciation pasty, pasty is, kind of a handheld pot pie. Um, it's a crust covered that you can hold in your hand and it's filled with uh, usually a combination of beef and um, pork, potatoes, onions, carrots, sometimes rutabagas. And the word pasty is unfamiliar to a lot of people who might visit the UP. And so they'll see it and connect it with the word they know more closely like pastry or pasties. It's neither of those, it's pasty. So I say pasty and that ah sound where in the UP you might hear people say something where that ah sound goes back further and down in the mouth to more something more like pasty versus pasty, pasty. Another sound uh, is connected specifically with the word sauna, uh, S-A-U-N-A, which many Americans, most Americans probably pronounce as sauna. But in the UP, many people will say sauna. And this is a really good example of that language, culture, history connection that I mentioned earlier. Um, the Finns, as well as other uh, as uh, Norwegians and Swedes that came in and other Europeans would say the word, pronounce it as sauna. And sauna is not only a word that was brought in, but the cultural practice of taking a sauna. Many of the houses in the Northwest UP have saunas in them. Uh, one of the dorms at Michigan Tech has a sauna in it. Um, people have camps or cottages on lakes. There are saunas there. There's a traditional practice on Saturday night, family sauna, um, where you go in your sauna, you relax uh, with your family or alone or with friends. So that word, as well as the practice, has become um, another kind of emblem of what it means to be a youper for some people, especially Finnish Americans, but other people too. Yeah, that was really fascinating to read about. It's not just the pronunciation of the word, but it's the cultural practice associated with it. Um, mm -hmm. And along those lines, I found really interesting this idea of enregisterment, 
that you write about, mm. which, as I understood mm-hmm. it, is the process by which speakers of a dialect become aware of their speaking of what they speak is a dialect or there's something unique about it. And through that awareness, they sort of reinforce it and practice it, maybe or display it more proudly or maybe try to hide it. Could you tell us more about what enregistrement is? Sure. Enregistrement is what you're saying, um, a good ex- um, a good description of it. It's also this idea where you have a way of speaking, a register, and it becomes reinvented or re Enregistered, so it's enregistered. Um, it becomes a new register or way of speaking because it is recognizable. What you say, and it might not be just people who speak that way, but from outside the area. But what's interesting, not all of the features of that dialect or way of speaking become recognizable, only certain ones, and they get reinforced uh, in the UP and other places like Pittsburgh. Barbara Johnstone has done a lot of research, and Scott Kiesling, too, on um, Pittsburghese and how T-shirts and coffee mugs and caps and banners and bumper stickers, all of this stuff um, reinforces it because certain features of the dialects become commodities. They become valuable because they're recognizable and they're recognizable because it talks, um, speaks to people and sorry, the pun about what it means to be from that place and of that place. So it's a way to do placemaking and identity work at the same time, but not all features get enregistered. Like I mentioned, bakery and pink, you don't see those on t-shirts, but you see things like, um, I know how to pronounce sauna or real Finns know how to pronounce sauna. Or um, you see postcards that say, it's not pastry, it's not pasties, it's pasty. Um, So these kinds of what we call shibboleths, words that are pronounced by insiders, quote unquote, correctly, and by outsiders, not pronounced um, correctly, quote unquote, of course. Um, And of course, I mentioned that A, and then the, the use of the for the those features get recirculated and recycled over and over again um, because they're recognized. But other features fly under the radar in that way. They're not unregistered. Tell us more about that process of commodification and contact. You you have a whole chapter on tourism and um how before the construction of the Mackinac Bridge in 1957, the UP was really hard to access from the Lower Peninsula. Um, but once that bridge was constructed and the post-war boom in tourism, you saw a lot of flow going into this region and this rise of tourism. And you uh, construct a really interesting narrative about how that affected language. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So um, before the bridge was built, people would take a train if they were from Chicago or Wisconsin or other places up to uh, the Upper Peninsula. If you lived in the Lower Peninsula, you probably would take a ferry from Mackinac City over to St. Ignace. Um, And there were probably other poor areas, too, but that's the one I know about the most. And that's where the bridge then was finally um, built in 1957. And it wasn't just contact through the bridge and easier travel, but it really was this post-war boom where people had expendable incomes to travel and vacation and maybe build a camp um, or a cottage up in the UP. So there was this increased contact. But it wasn't until um, the late 1970s Um, early 1980s that we even see the word youper um, used popularly. People probably used it, but it wasn't written down. Um, There was a, um, and I talk about this history in the book, 
there was a newspaper Escanaba, in Escanaba, Michigan, that had a contest. What do we call this dialect and the people here? And Uper won. Um, and then in the early 1980s, you started. we started seeing more and more evidence of this. For example, Michael Lukanen, who's a sociologist at Northern Michigan University, created a film, and he wanted to call it um, something youper in the title, but because youper isn't always seen as a positive term, and because of the stigma attached of what it means to be from an isolated place and to speak in a way that some people think is incorrect, um, people had a problem with that title. So he changed it to a good man in the woods. Um, but then in the 1980s, you start we started seeing more and more of the dialect um, in popular culture, meaning tourist stuff. So, for example, that bumper sticker, Sayada de UPA, was created in 1983 by Jack Bowers in Marquette. It was actually in response to a state of Michigan tourism campaign that left the Upper Peninsula off its maps. And the campaign was say yes to Michigan, um, but they forgot the UP. So as an act of transgression um, or resistance, um, he, Jack Bowers created this um, bumper sticker, say yada to UPA, of course, mimicking or mirroring say yes to Michigan. We then start seeing, I was at, um, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, I was at Michigan Tech as a grad student in early 90s, 90 to 95. I did, I saw the bumper sticker, but I didn't see the kinds of commodification that you see today. If you go to tourist shops or you go stop at a gas station, you probably see postcards. Um, if you go to a tourist shop, you'll see t-shirts and caps, and like I mentioned, postcards, other kinds of souvenirs with dialect features on them. And that that's relatively new. And then that creates um, this idea, of course, or reinforces the idea of what it means to speak like a youper. So that's why people will say to me, say yada to UPA, and I will answer with you betcha. Because those recognizable phrases that means, hey, I know what you know, right? I know what it means to sound like a youper. Um, I know what it means to be like a youper. That is but really, it's, limited, it's a really limited view and a limited way of knowing. I have to reinforce that because, of course, people speak differently everywhere. There's language variation. Not all youpers are going to sound alike, and not all youpers are going to use those features. Yeah, I really enjoyed the way you looked at different sort of geographic scales in your study, thinking about state identity, regional identity, but also mm -hmm. right down to the sort of hyper-local. Even within the Upper Peninsula, there's an understanding of the people who live in the cities or the university students who double the size of the population of Houghton, mm -hmm. Michigan, for example, when school is in session, um, versus the people who have uh, worked in certain trades and lived in certain parts of the of the peninsula for many generations. Can you tell me a bit about that economic piece, how um, language and identity intersects with the economy of the region and the changes that have been taking place there? I'm glad you asked that because that um, economic piece, one is part of this, the tourism, right? And tourism is a big industry, but the economic piece is also a big part of um, who was brought 
who came to the area, some of them were brought, like the Cornish were brought in. Um, but it also reinforces the stigma because the UP tends to be a majority population, working class, um, rural. Um, the largest city has 22,000 people, and that's Marquette. Um, there's wide spanses of land and be- spans of land between these towns and cities. So it, it's very rural. Um, and what it means to be, be a youper is attached economic perspective too because of the history of hard labor, of getting by with what you have in a climate and uh, a land that's pretty inhospitable. The only month in the UP where snow has not been recorded is August. I mean, that is a lot of snow. Well, with climate change, that will probably change. But um, you get the idea that it's not an easy place to always live. And agriculture, you have to bring in food from other places because there's not a long growing season. Um, And, of course, this history of hard work, um, of helping your neighbor, of getting by with, like I said, with what you have, uh, reinforces and is part of what it means to be a youper, that identity, um, and what it means to be from that place. I was fascinated to learn the Finnish word for uh, this hard scrabble, rough, or sort of t- uh, rugged uh, kind of attitude. What is that word? Well, in Finnish, it would be pronounced more or less like sisu, but many of the Finns or Finnish Americans or Finlanders, as they're called in the UP, or even just um, people from the Upper Peninsula will say sisu. And you'll see that on bumper stickers and caps and uh, vanity plates, um, uh, license plates on cars. And it means perseverance in the face of adversity. And it is surely something people can claim who live in a snowy, cold, buggy climate. Um, And uh, also a place that's one of the most beautiful places on earth, right? Um, Because of its natural beauty. And I think part of the idea of what it means to be a youper um, and this sense of sisu comes from this natural environment um, and um, kind of the ruggedness of it. Well, I have one last question for you, and that's uh, where are we now with the state of Youper Talk, and what do you and your informants that you spoke with, and you've done this fieldwork for for over many, many years, right? What's the sense of um, what this language will look like in years to come? Uh, As a person who studies communication, and particularly digital communication, I'm very curious about what things like social media might be doing for the language, whether people are concerned that uh, this unique identity might be diluted through uh, increased sort of migration and mobility, um, or is this new environment of communication enhancing and strengthening uh, Uber talk? Well, if only we had a linguistic crystal ball to tell us what the future holds, Um, just like with digital um, data, you know, where will it be? Will it even be around? One thing we know for sure is that language always changes. So people's fears about, oh, the dialects, regional dialects are dying, which uh, I address in one of the chapters in the book. Dialects aren't dying. Um, They're always changing. They have to as society changes, as people change. 
Sometimes we think that um, they die off and they've changed because of interaction, but social media probably doesn't affect that. Just like radio and television, we have to have human interaction. And right now we're using media to communicate through this podcast and the recording, um, and that could affect it. But usually that affects more or less our vocabulary. What affects it more are people's ideologies, language ideologies, their language attitudes. So, for example, students that I have from the Upper Peninsula that come down to Grand Rapids area um, to go to Grand Valley, quickly they change the way they talk um, because they don't want to be teased. And people tease them, oh, do you drive a snowmobile? Uh, do you have ATMs? Do you have an outhouse? All of these really, some are horrible, uh, stereotypes about what it means and not true stereotypes about what it means to be a youper. Um, so to avoid that stigma and the teasing, students do change the way they talk. But when we go back home to the people that we're close to, we, we again then talk like the people we're close to. We accommodate the way we um, talk to fit in with people we want to um, be close to and who we want to like and they like uh, want them to like us. Um, so dialects will change. How it will change, we have no idea. Um, we can't tell how that will change. Um, whether it stays the same in some ways, we're not even sure about that. We do know that the isolation and identity and the commodification of the dialect helps it maintain in certain ways. But those features that fly under the radar, like pank or bakery or some pronunciations that people don't, you know, um, have an awareness about, who knows what will happen with those. And the other ones that get put on T-shirts and bumper stickers, those might end up being little museum-like artifacts, too. So I guess what I'm saying is ask me in another 50 years if I'm alive and we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. Let's make a date. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with us about your book. Um, again, the title is Youper Talk, Dialect as Identity in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Uh, we just heard from Dr. Katherine Remlinger from Grand Valley State University. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on this. Thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at MidwesternHistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time. <laughs>